0: In just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: Hear
2: that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer
0: shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armorall, Less work, more clean. Terms apply.
2: Hello, and welcome back to Pass Gas by Donut Media. I'm your host, James Bumfrey, joined, as always, by my son, Nolan J Sykes. Hello, 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 hello. The J stands for James's son. <laughs> <laughs> One word. Past Gas it is an automotive history podcast. Every week Nolan and I are going to dive deep into the juiciest stories behind your favorite cars, automotive figures, race car drivers, race tracks. Everything in between slash betwixt.
1: Yes. If you're already familiar with us at Donut, thank you so much for joining us. Um, If you've never heard of Donut, we make car videos for the internet. Car videos for the internet! If you like this podcast, uh, you'll probably like our other stuff. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter,
2: too. Twitter. yes. Yes. Twitter. We are coming in to part three. Yeah. Of Ford versus Ferrari We're going to cover one of our favorite guys ever One of the coolest dudes in car history We've done a ton of videos about him Mm -hmm. Mr. Carroll Shelby Shelby. Hello, I'm Carroll Shelby Performance is my business Our
1: sources for
2: today are Carroll
1: Shelby, the authorized biography by Rinsey Mills And Go Like Hell by A.J. Blame Uh, So we're going to we're going to start by introducing Carol Shelby. We're going to Tarantino it. Uh, rewind from 1964, where we left off in our last episode, and um, learn about Carol, and then we're going to go forward in time and then continue the story Whoa. where we left off. Dude, so, that
2: is... Yeah. I believe we are the first podcast to tell a story in a non-linear fashion. Yeah. We must be the only ones who's ever done this. Buckle up. Anyway,
1: buckaroos. ready? All right. <laughs>
2: Past Gas Podcast, it's about cars, it's not about sports.
1: Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that. So thank you. Alright, now for the show. Carol Shelby was born on January 11th, 1923. Or was he? I'm kidding, Uh, on a 500-acre farm just outside of Leesburg in East Texas. Uh, Shelby's family moved to Dallas when he was still young, and he grew up watching auto races in the surrounding area with his pop. By the time he turned 18, Carroll knew there were two things he wanted to do with his life, okay? He wanted to be a professional race car driver, or he wanted to be a pilot. Now, being a pilot was a lot easier to do because racing takes a lot of money. So as soon as he graduated from high school, he enlisted in the Air Force and was flying trainer airplanes throughout World War II, training bomber pilots to fight on the front lines.
2: Interesting. So how did he know what to tell him to do if he'd never done it? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's kind of like, hey, uh, I think it'll probably be like this over there. Uh, Probably, I'm assuming it'll be a little bit scarier, though.
1: Yeah, because, let's see here. So he was 18 in 1941, so he would be like 9. I mean, yeah, he had no experience doing this. Yeah. Can you imagine, like. (laughs) He's just telling guys how to fly bombers.
2: Yeah. Like, you show up and, I mean, to be fair, you're probably a 15-year-old kid at this point, like 16, 17, and you're like, all right, well, time to learn how to go get shot out in an airplane, and then, like, some 20-year-old guy is like, let me show you how. Yeah. Yeah, because
1: he had to be trained by someone else, too. So, like, he got, I mean, at that time, bombing was still kind of in its, in its infancy. Mm-hmm. Um, they did it a little bit in World War One, but not nearly as much as they would in World War II. It's still, like, a new art form, I guess. So, like, I'm going to guess that Carol was just winging it.
2: Yeah, the <laughs> art of bombing sounds like um, Emo Phillips's autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> Through his time in the Air Force, Shelby was up to
1: all kinds of mischief james (laughs) dude i know he was yeah he once borrowed a trainer aircraft when the sergeant wasn't looking and used it to airdrop love letters onto the lawn of his girlfriend at the time and yes they did get married Mm -hmm. a few years later that's very sweet he soon had his first kid and left the service soon after
2: vj or victory over japan day uh after a few failed career choices, such as trucking contractor and even an oil roughneck, Shelby decided to try something that an aptitude test he took years earlier told him that he would be perfect for, and that was raising animals, little chicky chickens. Mm-hmm. And he was apparently pretty good at it. That is at least until one day, all of his chickens died of Newcastle disease and left him bankrupt.
1: Uh, naturally, I was pretty curious as to what Newcastle's disease is. It's a respiratory disease that affects farm fowl like chickens. It causes breathing problems, depression, <laughs> and diarrhea. These symptoms can also be seen in humans when combining liquor and Taco Bell. Thank you. <laughs> <That's Yeah>. stupid. <laughs> <laughs> On the day Shelby went and found his chickens had died, he reacted to it in a very strange way. Uh, this story was passed in a folklore in the area, but Shelby himself said it was absolutely true. James?
2: I woke up one morning. And all my chickens had died. So I filled this truck full of them, and I went all around town to all my friends. And I'd walk in, and I'd say, I've been thinking about you, so I brought you a chicken. And I'd lay this chicken on their desk. (laughs) I went around all the banks, businesses, everybody I knew. I brought them a dead chicken. (laughs) Guts, feathers, and all. I'd lay it on their desk and walk out. Very, cool. very cool. <laughs> what, a, what a
1: weird, what a weird guy. I mean, we're like huge fans of Carol Shelby, yeah. and I've never heard.
2: This I've, n- I've never heard that story, but like, it just makes me like him so it's, much more. It's so weird. It's so on brand for uh, him. Do you think? Do you think he like snapped and he was dealing with it in yeah, a weird way, or yeah. do you think he was just like, "Well, I might as well get a funny joke out of it." <laughs> more walk around till maybe it's like
1: 70-30, cuz like dude like that that aptitude test told him he's good at chicken farming. Mm-hmm. He probably had a handle on it for a little bit and then like invested all his money in it and then his entire life life's work just gets like wiped out.
2: <laughs> hey, have you seen Carol lately? <laughs> yeah, he came by my office. During his stint as a poultry farmer, Shelby had begun pursuing another lifelong interest. He started racing. Mm. Shelby officially got behind the wheel of a race car for the first time in 1952, having convinced one of his friends, again, so Shelby, having convinced one of his friends to lend him their MGTC. The natural talent he was, Shelby won his first ever road race with that MG. Feeling a bit lucky, Shelby decided to enter into another street race later that day, but this time against faster cars such as the Jaguar xk 120 And he won that, too. From the very beginning, Shelby was an unstoppable presence on the track. I just want to point out, Enzo Ferrari's first race, he got second. And he cried his little eyes out in his car afterwards. Shelby, first race, first place. Did so good, he didn't cry his eyes out. He entered another race that same day and won it.
1: Shelby continued to race, upgrading from the MG to an Allard. Although the Allard was still much slower than his competitors, he was impossible to beat when it came to maneuverability. He just had a natural connection with his car. Mm -hmm. He knew what what it was doing at all times. Shelby would either win or place within the top five of every race he participated in. And after a while, he started receiving a bit of attention. From other teams. Ooh, I bet. (laughs) In nineteen fifty-six, Aston Martin team manager John Weir, or wire, we still don't know how it's pronounced. I'm gonna say Weir. Never will.
2: Nobody knows. I'm
1: gonna say John Weir. Uh he
2: doesn't even know. When he introduces himself, he goes, Hello, my name is John Weir. (laughs) Wire? Wire.
1: Wire. He has two IDs.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They both say the same thing. (laughs) In
1: 1956, Aston Martin team manager John Weir, uh, from the last episode. John Weir. John Weir. He would later help design the GT40. Anyway, Weir approached Shelby and asked him to join the team. Shelby was brought overseas and began to display his amazing driving abilities to a European audience. Now that he was behind some of the most powerful vehicles on the planet, he was unstoppable. In 1959, he even brought home the checkered flag for Aston Martin at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. By
2: 1960, a heart condition that plagued Carroll Shelby as a child returned. By the age of seven, Shelby had been diagnosed with a heart valve leakage problem, which had caused him to live most of his early childhood bedridden due to severe chest pains. While doctors had okayed him in his youth, his condition had returned with a vengeance. He was forced to hold a nitroglycerin tablet beneath his tongue for the entirety of his final race at Laguna Seca in 1960, just to manage the chest pain. Nitroglycerin works to help prevent angio pectoris, or localized chest pains, and even relieve it. So good to know.
1: <laughs> good to know. Oh, yeah. Of course, Shelby won that race, but was forced to retire from racing immediately after that at the age of 37. That's crazy to think about. I think it's 37.
2: That's old as frig, dude. Is it? For an athlete? Maybe. Dude, 37's super old. I guess not for race car drivers. There's like half of the guys in NASCAR are like 58. Yeah. But for like an athlete to be 47, yeah. like LeBron James is old and he's my How age. How old
1: is he? He's 34. He's 34?
2: Yeah. We graduated high school the same year.
1: That's crazy. He like, I thought he was like 40. Right? <laughs> yeah.
2: Because yeah. athletes are younger than us. It, it, he retired at thirty seven, but like that's not young to no, retire.
1: No, yeah, I guess so.
2: <laughs> <Like> he retired <laughs> from an old man disease like his heart hurt. Yeah. Uh
1: but Carol Shelby wasn't the kind of man to just sit back and do nothing. He immediately opened his own racing school and began teaching people the way of the Shelves. Shelby decided that his new purpose in life would to leave his mark on the automotive industry, and he opened up a small shop in Venice, California, not Italy, so he could do just that. By the way, uh, the shop's address was 1042 Princeton. I looked at it on Google Maps last night, and mm-hmm. now it's just like some lame work living space thing. Like there's no, you would never know. It's like know. a WeWork?
2: Yeah. Carol Shelby's yeah. shop is now a WeWork? Basically. Just like people in there drinking kombuchas. Yep. And writing scripts and pretending they have a business. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's I mean, that's most of Venice, though, right now, right?
2: I guess. Either that or the heroin-addicted homeless. It's a beautiful city. Yeah, we have a real housing problem here in Los Angeles going on right now. And Venice is at the epicenter. <laughs> you know, where else can you buy an $8 million home and step on a heroin needle? He dreams <laughs> of building a European sports car powered by an American V8, and lucky for him, AC Motors had just lost their engine supplier for the AC Ace Roadster, leaving a bunch of empty bodies just begging for a V8. Please give me a V8.
1: Please,
2: (laughs) please, sir. Just like those homeless people (laughs) in Venice are begging for our politicians to wake up and our citizens to wake up and find some sort of solution no one can't even afford a 10-bedroom home.
1: Yeah, I'm forced to look for these just pathetic 7-bedroom homes. Yeah, you're slumming so it gross.
2: in a barely even a mansion. <laughs> Dude, the last place you looked at didn't even have a freaking menagerie. <laughs> I don't want anybody hosting a donut show who doesn't have an impressive menagerie <laughs> and a roller coaster.
1: All right, Shelby. Shelby was a huge Chevrolet fan. So, of course, they were his first target for his patented Texas charm. Unfortunately for him, though, they had no interest in supplying engines for such a project, as they were still trying to appear as predominantly anti-racing, despite the existence of their very own sports car.
2: To learn more about why they were anti-racing, check out the episode of Bumper to Bumper, where we talk about the secret Corvette that Chevy tried to kill.
1: Nice plug. Thank you. Uh, they did not want a car in or outside their lineup that could outperform their very own Corvette, a car that had become the performance standard in America. So I think on Chevy's part, that's actually pretty reasonable.
2: Well, actually, what was going on was Chevy had a 52% market share in the States. And if they reached 60%, then they would like violate antitrust laws and the American government would force them to like cut themselves up. So... They were in this weird situation where they didn't want to get any be- They didn't want to do any better mm-hmm. because it would be worse for them. They were like just like riding this wave of, okay,
1: perfect amount of success. Yeah. Chevy had been kicking ass and taking names with the Corvette and did not want to power a car that would make it obsolete. So Shelby went to the only other option he had, Chevy's biggest rival, the Ford Motor Company. Pink deuce. After a bit of sweet talking and some batted eyelashes, Shelby convinced Ford to supply engines for the Roadster. The 4.3-liter small black V8 engine was immediately mated to a four-speed transmission, and the first Shelby Cobra was born. Yes! James, what? perfect instincts. I was gonna ask you for sound effects. <laughs> I didn't even have to ask.
2: Race fans watched as the Ford-powered Cobra just freaking wiped the track. And Chevy's market share finally started falling. Shelby had done one thing that other companies had struggled to do. He built a car that could beat the Corvette. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But to Shelby, just beating Chevy would never be good enough. He wanted his car to be faster than anything else. And to do that, he hired a young engineer by the name of Pete Brock.
1: Pete Brock looked at the Cobra and determined it needed a more aerodynamic design. Uh, If you're familiar with the Cobra, which you should be, it's got a giant mouth on Mm -hmm. the front and that just traps a ton of air. While Shelby firmly believed that when it came to racing, horsepower was king, uh, Pete Brock had a radically different approach. He believed that the best way to increase the on-track performance of the Cobra would be to redesign the body. Shelby wasn't on board with the more aerodynamic design, Uh, but he believed in the young Pete Brock.
2: Hey, man, you got some crazy ideas, and honestly, I I don't know if if I'm on board with them, but I trust you. But if you screw this up, Pete, look at me, I will kill you.
1: Uh
2: (laughs) Uh-huh. So this design better work.
1: Uh, Okay, boss. (laughs) Shelby just walks away (laughs) and he's like, he calls his mom. (laughs) Uh, There was a lot to risk with this design. I'd say so. Yeah. (laughs) And Shelby wanted to make sure it was done right. So he provided Brock with a friendly reminder that if the new design didn't outperform the Cobra, then he would receive a promotion from engineer to customer at Shelby American. Not really a promotion. No, that's a D-motion. Yeah, What was born was the racing coupe that looked radically different than anything else that had ever come out of Shelby American. The design was so radical that an aerospace engineer told Pete Brock to his face that the design would never work. Despite that, he stuck with his design, and the beautiful Shelby Daytona coupe was born. The Daytona utilized a larger 4.7-liter engine capable of producing over 400 brake horsepower. But the improved aerodynamics eliminated any issues at high speed normally suffered by open cockpit designs. This car could reach a top speed of over 190 miles per hour, which was good as Shelby had once again set his eyes back at the 24 hours of Le Mans.
2: We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now.
2: 1964. Is this the one that Ford had the hard time with last time? The Daytona? Oh, no, in '64. Yeah,
1: yep. Yeah, this is. So now we're back. Okay, that was the flashback. Oh yeah. And now we're back
2: to where we were. We're back in 1964. No, but the car is called the, the Shelby. The car Daytona. is called the Daytona. Okay, so 1964. 64. Yeah. Goofus has already wrecked two of those Ford GTS. With the chocolate all over his hands. Mm -hmm. But so Ford is having a tough time. This is like their zealous year. Hank Deuce is just throwing money at all the at all the problems they Ford has tried to buy Ferrari. Ferrari backed out at the last minute because Ford, you know, broke their agreement. Yep. And Ford is in France just trying to beat Ferrari. They've spent millions of dollars on this car that kind of blows. Yep. Shelby shows up. With his Daytona. With his Daytona.
1: In 64, while Ford was publicly trying to humiliate Ferrari in the prototype class, many people overlooked the amazing race that was being held just one
2: class lower in the GT class. Shelby has entered his Shelby Daytona within the GT class. Not only did Shelby win that class that year, the Shelby American team placed fourth place in the entire race. While Ford had supplied minor financial support to his team, the executives were shook by what Shelby had actually managed to do. He had built a GT car that could fight above its own weight class and keep up with an entire racing class above it. Hank Deuce, a.k.a. Henry Ford II, who is actually Henry Ford's grandkid, Mm -hmm. Etzel was his dad, was enamored with the Shelby American team. And after the absolute tragedy of a race that his team had endured, Hank decided to finally hand the reins of the GT40 over to Carroll Shelby. When it came to fighting outside his weight class, Shelby was a master. Mm
0: -hmm. By
1: 1965, America was in the throes of a full-on speed revolution. Children had begun to rebel against their parents, yeah. de- deciding they did not want to live their parents' lives. I
2: don't want your life!
1: <laughs> Instead of choosing a repressed 1950s-era lifestyle, people longed for a sense of
2: independence and freedom. Having a repressed 1950s lifestyle may have been the opportunity of your lifetime, but I don't want your life.
1: And car I fr- don't want your life. And car manufacturers were fully taken advantage of this popular social movement by building muscle cars specifically mm. tailored to fill those needs. Yeah. As AJ Blame puts it, "Speed was nothing but sex," and it was true. Yeah,
2: true words have <laughs> never been spoken. Whenever I do speed, all I want to do is have sex,
1: and whenever I have sex, it's
2: really fast. <laughs> <laughs> Like the Marlboro Man of the past, racing had become the personification of manhood and its popularity was soaring through the roof. Over 5 million people went to view live- 50 million. Whoa. Yeah. That's 10 times as many as I originally (laughs) said. Over 50 million people went to view live races in 1964. To put that into perspective, last year in America, the number of people- who went to a live NASCAR race or IndyCar combined. Seven. Wow. People. <laughs> it's true. People, go to your racetracks. Yeah, go to your racetracks. Support racing. You think your car, dude? Go watch racing. The popularity of the sport had grown so much that even Hollywood... In California had begun incorporating fast and flashy automobiles and their drivers in their films, such as the James Bond franchise, or Gone in 60 Seconds. The New York Times noted the new trend in 1965 and commented on the rampant automania that was taking place in the U.S. Never before has a romance between man and machine blazed so strong, wrote a Los
1: Angeles Times columnist. Ford was no stranger to capitalizing on this trend. In a
2: shareholders meeting, Henry Ford II announced that The company is now enjoying the most successful operations in its long history, don't you know?
1: They had reached an all-time sales record of $9.67 billion worldwide and had a record profit of $505 million, all while employing nearly 337,000 people. The Mustang was on its way to becoming the best-selling launch vehicle of all time. And Ford Car and Truck Division Vice President Lee Iacocca Iacocca. knew he wanted the Mustang to become the consumer performance icon of the Ford lineup. And he knew there's no better way to cement that image, James, than sell a race package designed Mm -hmm. by Carroll Shelby himself. Now, Shelby was like, I don't know if I can do it, man. It's the secretary's car. Shelby had said But that didn't matter To Henry II As long as Shelby Could make it fast I mean it's not Very
2: masculine You know what I mean Yeah what does that mean Secretary's car It means You know it means like You know how like A man is the boss Uh yeah okay And then you got like A woman working for you Yeah Doing all the woman stuff Like answering the phones mm-hmm. Hello how are you Cause I'm not gonna say that I'm a man I'm masculine Yeah men don't Yeah so Say hello Mustang Is a car for her <laughs> You see what I'm saying? Not really, but... Yeah, it's a car for someone who likes to answer phones and make my appointments.
1: Uh, Iacocca was going to be placing the GT40 next to every car in the Ford lineup uh, in advertisements, and he wanted to make sure that
2: the Mustang had a trim level that proved worthy of that honor. Henry II, a.k.a. Hank Deuce... Went a bit crazy giving out promotions at this time. He promoted Lee Iacocca to VP of Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury. And he installed Don Frey at the top of the Ford division. On top of all that, he promoted his wife to a more relationship-independent role in his life, meaning Hank Deuce divorced her (laughs) and married his Italian mistress.
1: Oh, my God. So he just goes to Italy to, like... Probably he probably met her yeah when he was over there trying Mm -hmm. to set up the Ferrari. He didn't go over there. I'm sure. I mean, how? Of course,
2: he went over there. He has an Italian mistress. He didn't meet her on the internet. On OKCube. (laughs) Yeah, that that computer that they built to test the GT40 originally. (laughs) He also like got online and started creeping aim message rooms. He's on LinkedIn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh wow! I met her on a computer. A what? The computer. The what? What a piece of garbage this guy is. I
1: like him less every time Uh, I talk about him.
2: The change in marital, he really is my least
1: favorite guy. He's not the hero in this story. If you're following along and you're saying, hey, I like this Hank
2: Deuce guy, no. The change in marital status helped Hank's new public persona embody the spirit of the new Ford (laughs) Motor Company. Rebellion, sex, and risk. (laughs) Buy a Ford, divorce your wife. (laughs) (laughs) It's you know, just not working out. You know, you don't really fit in with the uh, with the new image of the company. <laughs> so, uh, deal's off.
1: Yeah. <laughs> On January 27th, 1965, Ford announced to the world that they would officially be teaming up with Shell the American to build and race all of Ford's competition sports car.
2: I didn't know it was that big of a deal. Yeah. Huge deal. It was like a big announcement. Yeah. So, they were basically saying that across the board- Shelby is involved with our racing team essentially the deal that he made with Ferrari initially He goes and does with Shelby
1: This just gets more frustrating every every page (laughs) Just like I don't want to make it sound like we're just totally shitting on Ford, but like in retrospect a Lot of bad decisions are made.
2: Yeah, I mean that's what happens when the way you become the head of one of the largest companies in America is to be the son of the last guy who is the head, yeah, you know? And, like, his dad was the head of it before him. Yeah. You know, this is why we moved away from England. Yeah. And came over here.
1: Yeah. Leo Beebe, director of Special Vehicles, had this to
2: say. We're taking this move to consolidate the construction of racing on all GT-type vehicles within the same specialist organization. During that same announcement, Ford paraded its new
1: racing versions of the Mustang, including the Mustang GT350. The prices of these new Mustangs ranged from six to $9,000, prices that were outrageous at the time, especially for a Ford. But nobody expected that someday those same cars would be fetching hundreds of thousands of dollars at auctions over 50 years later. I would definitely like a GT350. An old one? Yeah, that'd be sick.
2: Yeah, that's a really cool car. More, more than the 500? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to think about that. This legendary lineup was finished with the GT40. Unlike all other cars, the GT40 had no price tag. Wow. People could only imagine how much one of those would cost to purchase, let alone how much Ford had sunk in development. BB stated that this year the car would only be focused on winning the big three races. The Daytona Continental 2,000-kilometer race in February, the 12 Hours of Sebring in March, and the 24 hours of Le Mans in June. Immediately after the announcement and demonstration, the GT40s were shipped to a new Shelby American plant located in the City of Angels. Unlike his old two-car garage in Venice, the new plant stretched over 12.5 acres of land bordering Los Angeles International Airport. Hey, that's kind of near my house. The site consisted of two hangars that had recently been used by North American aviation to build saber military jets totaling over ninety six thousand square feet of space. Again, I had no idea, even though we've done so many, you yeah. know, videos on Shelby, I had no idea what a massive partnership this was.
1: Yeah, this is huge. Like yeah. it's just so cool to see a guy go from like homegrown basically mm-hmm. into like being I won't say corporate, but like I mean he made it. You know, he made it. The official move of Shelby American into the new space took place on March 1st, 1965. One hangar housed the racing shop and administrative offices, uh, while the other hangar had an assembly line. The second hangar is where each Cobra and Shelby Mustang were hand-built at the rate of 125 cars per month. So that's like four cars a day almost, a little over that. Yeah. That's cool. The team had just begun adjusting to life in the new facility and had already begun speeding up. Only three years after the official debut of the Cobra, Shelby had become the largest independent sports car manufacturer in America with its sales creeping past $10 million per year. That's insane. Was this 1965? Yeah, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Wow. His business held a shocking number of similarities to the one run by Enzo Ferrari over in Maranello. But unlike Ferrari... Shelby was a bit of a showman.
2: But it's like Hank Deuce screwed over the Italian sports car company and then found the equivalent American sports car company and screwed over his American wife and found the equivalent Italian wife.
1: This guy, dude.
2: Again, Shelby, a showman. One visitor to the facility described Carroll Shelby as pacing about relentlessly like a lawman who expected trouble suddenly to burst out behind every swinging door in town. (laughs) who is this visitor (laughs) doc Holliday? yeah just like the most eloquent cowboy ever (laughs) carol moved so fast that even his secretary who drove a mustang probably had to quit out of frustration you have to go 90 miles per hour to keep up with him and i'm just an old-fashioned 80 mile per hour girl she Uh, sounds nice she sounds great everyone back then just spoke so cool yeah
1: while Shelby had gotten used to the new conditions and increased productivity, many of his workers were really taking some time to adjust to the new situation. They were uncomfortable with the new environment and disliked that they were now working alongside, quote, professionals in suits. Yeah. These guys are good. I mean, these guys probably just went to work in t-shirts and jeans. And yeah. that was good enough for them because it really was. But then Ford nerds mm-hmm. come in. Ugh. As soon as they had the chance, Shelby threw driver Ken Miles. Ooh into the GT40 to begin preparations for the Daytona Continental. At this point, the car had been taken apart so many times that it had lost all of its original settings.
2: It may sound odd, but our first job was actually to
1: get the cars back to where they had started, said Miles. The team from Shelby American headed to Willow Springs to test the car. Technicians from Aero Neutronic, a Ford-owned aerospace company, met them at the track. The technicians arrived with the most advanced computer systems they could get a hold of and they rigged it up inside the passenger seat. It filled over half the car, but enabled the engineers to get real-time data trackside during testing. This was probably the first time computer equipment was used in the development of a race car directly on the track. Uh, While the techs set up the computer, Shelby's team manager, Carol Smith. Two guys named Carol, (laughs) get out of town. (laughs) Decided to gather information the old fashioned way. Using some scotch tape and some yarn, it, uh, Carol Smith covered the driver's side of the car in small strips of yarn, mm-hmm. enabling the team to observe the airflow around the car's body as it drove by.
2: We don't need no highfalutin computer tutor. <laughs> we got good old fashioned art supplies. <laughs> we got a Michaels down the street. <laughs> Here's a Michaels down the street, and I got a gift card like for <laughs> Christmas. <laughs>
1: Uh, Throughout all the testing, it was discovered that at least 76 horsepower was being lost due to inefficient air ducting. They also ditched the wire spoke wheels. uh, They traded them out for mag wheels, which saved about 30 pounds of rotating mass, which is a lot. And they also fitted wider tires on the rear to prevent wheel spin. Engineers were working day in and day out to make a car that could truly stand up against the Ferraris at Le Mans. In fact, Shelby's team frequently took amphetamines yeah. to fuel frequent all night <laughs> work sessions yeah. getting the car ready. <laughs> Don't do drugs, but toy! These dudes are just like,
2: <laughs> dude, what if we. I think maybe we should put more uh, yarn on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah more <laughs> yarn. <laughs> it's <crazy>. the tires <laughs> wider and freaking. Damn, we should go to brunch tomorrow. It's all. Right. We just gotta go to brunch.
1: We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors.
2: Throughout all of his testing, Shelby American held a strict closed-door policy, which was a stark contrast to that of his Venice shop. While at his Venice shop, people were, you know, encouraged to come in. Yeah, just hang out, man. Yeah, dude. It's freaking the beach, dude. We're just building race cars over here, dude. That's pretty
1: chill, dude. Yeah, dude.
2: That's so chill. It's so cool. It is really cool every time I'm reminded that his first shop was in like in Venice. Venice Beach was yeah. like... <laughs> <That's so cool. laughs> just like right on the beach but at the new facility it wasn't as chill Mm-mm. because Ford but armed guards <laughs> at multiple levels and had constant surveillance going on all the time mm-hmm. it was a virtual police state it's crazy. You could not enter the facility without permission.
1: Hey, can I come in? No. Damn it. Uh, while we've mentioned his name before, we haven't really explained who Ken Miles is yet. Prior to joining the Shelby American team in early 1963, Ken Miles had achieved an almost cult-like status in Southern California sports car scene.
2: Just like us. Yeah.
1: He. <laughs> Just like you and me. Yeah, we're Ken Miles. We're, we're like basically Ken Miles. the
2: Ken Miles of Media. <laughs>
1: he was known for his delicate touch and lightning-fast reactions. <laughs> and even opened his own small tuning shop off the Hollywood Highway, a.k.a. the 101, for all you L.A. listeners. Um, where you grew up in Kentucky, do people put the in front of highways? Nope. Take 64.
2: You take 95. Do you say the now? I say the 101 but I don't say the PCH. I say PCH. Do you say the PCH? I say
1: the in front of everything.
2: Uh, in front of everything? Yeah, like... The banana.
1: The banana. <laughs> no, but... I don't know.
2: It's like, you do call yourself the Nolan <laughs> Sykes. Yeah, I do. <laughs> the <laughs>
1: Nolan Sykes. I love when people do that on, like, social media. Like, they put the Nolan J. Sykes as, yeah. like, their Instagram. Well, it's because
2: they slept on it, yeah. and they don't have it anymore. So dumb. Um... Ken Miles
1: spent his day tinkering on about any cool car he could get his hands on, and of course, racing them on the site. Despite his successful career as a private driver, he was never offered to drive in Formula One. Somehow, the entire world of elite international racing had managed to pass him by, but when it came down to it, he had what it took to compete with the best. Ken was built of tougher stuff that only a few of his colleagues were actually old enough Experienced enough to understand. He had lived through World War II, and unlike Shelby, he had served on the front lines. He'd served as a tank driver in the British Army and participated in recon and recovery missions, meaning, like, he would go into hot zones and rescue people.
2: Yeah, or. with a tank.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's sick. Get in, mate. <laughs> uh, his lightning-fast reflexes saved his life on multiple occasions, including an encounter with a German officer as he rounded a hallway on foot in battle. Dude, like yeah. freaking
2: battlefield.
1: Yeah, meaning he killed a Nazi, OK Corral style. What's that mean? I don't like just like quick drama. You shoot
2: him? Or are you sure he didn't kill him with a knife? How do you know he didn't crack his neck like Arnold?
1: I choose to believe that he ripped the guy's head off. Yeah. Just twisted it off like sweet, a grape.
2: Sweet dreams, you pug.
1: <laughs> That's badass, though, dude. Yeah. Uh, while he never spoke of the war, he would wear his old army jacket like a flag on his back all throughout the 60s. Damn, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> he was proud of his service, but he also knew that the racetrack was not the place to be rem- reminiscing over war stories. In fact, he took his job as a racer very seriously. He even once said,
2: You know, I'd rather die in a racing
1: car than get eaten up by cancer. It was that attitude that made him the perfect candidate to be a lead driver at the upcoming Daytona Endurance Race.
2: I'd rather die in a race car than get eaten up by cancer. I'm going to go get a hot dog. You guys want anything? (laughs) (laughs) Just totally unprompted. (laughs) Yeah, he's just like sitting on the wall, just like staring off. He's like, "Yeah, I'd probably rather die here. Maybe. In the pits before the race, Shelby made sure that Miles was introduced to his new racing partner, a Texan named Lloyd Ruby. Though Shelby pronounced his name Lloyd Ruby, Lloyd Ruby, is that a joke? No, I don't. I think it's. Just, I remember reading that Lloyd
1: Ruby, Lloyd Ruby, Lord there Ruby. must be some way we're not
2: getting it. So Ruby was an experienced indie car driver, but Miles was worried that he would not do very well. Ruby walked so slowly that he appeared to be drunk, and Miles had no tolerance for anyone who was slower than him. <laughs> you walk slower than me? Screw you, dude. You walk slower than me, mate. I got no tolerance for it. <laughs> I only like fast walkers. He'd love Jesse. Jesse walks so fast. Yeah. Both Ruby and Miles had such thick accents, and such different thick accents, that they could barely understand what each other was saying. Yet when they put Ruby behind the wheel... He was incredible, Ooh. Nolan. He was flat out the entire time and flew around the track. Luckily for Shelby, Miles and Ruby formed a connection deeper than words Ooh. and could convey their entire race plan with a simple nod. Crazy. Shelby was floored as he was washed over with a wave of confidence at the team he had chosen. That's good stuff. Everything's falling into place. The exact
1: opposite. Finally working out. At 10 a.m., the race began. While it only lasted 12 hours, Daytona was incredibly tough on cars. Ferrari driver John Surtees immediately took the lead in his prototype V12. Shelby knew that his only chance to win was for Surtees <laughs> to break down. And as luck would have it, Sergei's blew a tire a few hours into the race, and his Ferrari was thrown into the grass, removing him from the race entirely.
2: Mamma mia, my <laughs> tire, she blew
1: <laughs> The GT 40 was finally in the lead, and it held that position until the end of the race. At 10 PM, the checkered flag waved and Shelby's cars had placed first through fifth. Oh. After preparing over eight weeks for the race, the team had finally brought home a checkered flag for Ford and more importantly, for Henry II. This was the first time in more than 40 years that an American car had won at a sanctioned international race. Wow. And how did Shelby respond
2: to the good news? I got drunker than shit. (laughs) That's a quote. That's a quote. From the dude. Quote, unquote. I got drunker than shit.
1: Yeah, that means we don't have to bleep it. Yeah. It's a quote. It's
2: historical. Needless to say, Enzo Ferrari was... (laughs) <laughs> How could Ford dump so much money into a car and just win? Where was the work ethic? The entire GT40 project had gone completely against the standards held by Enzo Ferrari. Ford was starting to win, and he was having none of it. The next day, Enzo played his trump card. He released a headline that appeared all over Europe and America, stating, Ferrari cars quit world title meets. <laughs> I'm never going to race again never <laughs> of course
1: everyone knew he was bluffing if ferrari stopped racing there would be no more ferrari no
2: i'm not bluffing i mean it
1: enzo come no, on
2: i don't want to race come on no
1: enzo if you stop oh. racing your brand is dead we all know that
2: you don't even care if a ferrari go away don't say that it's how i feel sometimes
1: oh what's the problem
2: I feel like everybody like a Ford, nobody like a Ferrari. Look,
1: like, man, they just won one race. One race.
2: Tell me you like me.
1: Well, I of course I like you, you Enzo. You do. Yes, but
2: are you a better up with Enzo?
1: No, I just, I love you.
2: <laughs> I love you too.
1: But his his willing Enzo's willingness to reach. To release such a headline demonstrated just how displeased he really was, and frankly, how much of a drama queen he was. But Ford and Shelby didn't care about how displeased he was. They were too busy preparing for their second big race of that year, the 12 Hours of Sebring. Carol was sitting in his office one day when his phone began to ring. It was Alec Ullman, the man behind the 12 Hours of Sebring.
2: Hey, Carol, I got this car. It's called the Chaparral or something uh it's this weird Texan guy jim hall yeah he built it either way this guy wants to race now technically it doesn't actually qualify but that's all right who uh who really is the fia anyway (laughs) yeah no man it's chevy powered yeah i'm thinking about pitting ford against chevy yeah i think it would bring in a lot and i mean a lot of happy audience members okay okay i hear you about to say no over there but just hear me out okay I'm very poor, and I need this. I've been losing a lot of money. I really, really need this. Thanks, Carol.
1: Obviously, this was a pretty solid argument on Oman's part, and despite the fact that the Chaparral was rumored to be secretly funded by
2: Chevrolet, Shelby still agreed to let it run under one condition. I don't give a shit if the Chaparral runs, as long as you don't give Jim Hall the trophy, and you tell the world that it is a 1,500-pound car and we have to weigh over 2,000 pounds. Seems fair.
1: Yeah, so basically the Chaparral did not qualify for any class. It was just like really freaking fast. Yeah. And Jim Hall wanted to prove that it could beat anything. Mm -hmm. And we'll see how that works out. Shelby was going to be sure it was clear as night and day that the Chaparral didn't belong in the race. But as soon as he hung up the phone, he felt like he made a terrible mistake. Ferrari, of course, pulled out of the 12 hours of Sebring as soon as they heard that the Chaparral was going to run.
2: Oh no, this car is no fair.
1: Enzo was not going to let some unknown hick from the sticks, a second hick from the sticks, embarrass his company with a car that looked like it had a butter knife strapped to the top. At 10 a.m., the race started. The 5.2-mile track was placed on a perfectly flat, retired military airfield, a placement they would soon regret. Uh, The Chaparral was impossible to catch on the flat ground. It was impossibly fast and absolutely wiped the floor with its opponents. If you guys are unfamiliar with Sebring, it's, one, one of the most legendary tracks in the U.S., but two, if you have the time, definitely try it out on one of of your simulators, like Forza. It's such an incredibly complex track, and it is completely flat.
2: Mm, No hills?
1: No hills. At 325 p.m., it started to rain a lot. Within minutes, the track was pounded by a tropical storm and flooded the track. Water was upwards of six inches deep in some places. Visibility was non-existent and the race had slowed to a crawl. Uh, Phil Hill brought his GT40 into the pit. When he opened the door, water poured out of the car. As he tried to get out, Shelby pushed him back in. get back in there. (laughs) While a mechanic punched holes in the floor with a hammer to drain the water. Watch out for my balls, Hill screamed. Of course, the race was a disaster. Even truck driver Red Pierce suffered during this race as he was spotted unconscious face down in the water in the paddock. He had apparently been electrocuted by a soaked (laughs) generator. Wow! Unsurprisingly, though, Hall won the race with the Chaparral, taking away Ferrari's victory streak at Sebring. While the trophy was officially awarded to Shelby and his team, the news media only cared about the Chaparral. Headlines read, Hall ushers in a new era at Sebring. Of course, Shelby was pissed alongside everyone else at Ford. They had one more chance to fix their reputation, and that was the 24 hours of Le Mans.
2: During the Le Mans test weekend, Shelby's health issues had started catching up with him yet again. His angina, (laughs) grow up. All right, sorry. His angina, which is his chest pain, was killing him literally about five years prior Shelby's doctor told him that there was a chance that it would lead to his death within five years and he had been given that news almost five years ago to the day so
1: he's like I
2: might die today yeah <laughs> hey what day is it oh crap oh. <laughs> Shelby lived every day with the fear that at any moment his heart could give out and he'd be dead but he didn't let that stop him from racing
1: and by the way I know they didn't have cell phones back in the 60s that was a joke okay the coolest change. To the GT40 happened without Shelby's involvement. Over the past four months, while Shelby had been busy in racing the previous GT40s, Roy Lunn, remember him from the previous episode, mm-hmm. had devised a little scheme at his personal shop, Carcraft. He and five other staff members had been busy building the newest prototype racer for Le Mans, and this prototype had one major change, and that was the engine. The previous 289 cubic inch Fairlane V8 had been replaced with a much larger, much more powerful big block 427, seven liter V8. Woo woo. Big boy. Yeah, we can get a woo woo. Woo woo. All right. The engine was huge. It was the largest engine that Ford had ever produced up till then. Seven liters was the max displacement allowed by many racing organizations at the time. If that wasn't the case, I'd imagine they had gotten bigger. <laughs> of course, a bigger engine required bigger exhaust, and the new exhaust stuck out of the rear of the car like cannons. The 7-liter engine had already conquered stock car racing that year, winning, curiously, 48 out of 45 Grand Nationals. Um, I don't know how that's possible, but that's what happened. Uh, they were excited to see if the engine could handle running against the best of the rest of the world had to offer.
2: Testing of the new version of the GT40 began almost immediately after presenting it to Don Frey in May. The race was one month away and everyone was on a very tight schedule. They're never efficient with their time. It's, like, no, it's always it's like, like we're, the deadline's coming up, guys. Yeah, they're like a velocity yeah. car show. <laughs> SEMA is two days away and we yeah. just
1: started working.
2: I on gotta build this race car in 48 hours to go win Le Mans. They brought the car to Romeo, Michigan, where they tested it on a high-speed test track. The car was terrifyingly fast. In fact, test driver Tom Payne, a Ford dealer... Why do they keep letting dealership owners drive their cars? I was about to say. (laughs) A Ford dealer owner from Michigan said, Well, I suppose you'd like to know what the dials were reading. Well, I don't have the nerve to look down at them. To be honest... I'd be scared if I had driven the car over 200 miles per hour on my second
1: time. Why are they giving these cars to They just keep
2: handing over these, like, multi-million dollar race cars to guys who own their dealerships. And, like, they're all, like, even that guy's quote is, like, I was too scared to look at any of the stuff. (laughs) So, like, what good is testing? It's like, how fast did you go? I don't know. Did you know it was scary in there? (laughs) I had my eyes closed half the time. (laughs) I just won a raffle.
1: Uh, Immediately after, they decided this is the car they needed for Le Mans. They ordered another one be built and shipped the one used in testing off to Shelby for additional tuning. They dubbed this new version of the GT40 the GT40 Mark II. Just like
2: Iron Man. Back at his assembly plant in L.A., Shelby was increasingly exhausted from the pre-Le Mans schedule, and his health had been consistently declining. But he still used his good old Texas charm to win his way into the hearts of every person he met. Ford had a great racing year in 1965. They had won NASCAR and Indy. The only race left on Ford's agenda was Le Mans. And the responsibility of winning that race was placed firmly on Shelby's shoulders. One day, Shelby gave Hank Deuce a tour of his facility, showing him his collection of GT350s and Cobras, along with the two new GT40s. Shelby was described as a kid in a candy shop. A Ford exec even commented to Henry, Can you imagine a guy getting paid for doing this? Shelby was doing what he loved, and he was not afraid to show it. But back in Italy, it was a different story. Oh, no. <laughs> Ferrari had just begun testing his new 40 to V12 330 P2 at Monza. A promising new local Italian racer named Bruno De Certi was invited to test the car for Ferrari. This test would also act as an audition to cast De Certi as an official Ferrari racing driver, something he had always dreamed of or should we say, nightmare of. <laughs> <laughs> Ferrari saw himself in De and remembered the pressure that he felt the first time he was in De position, trying out for Alfa Romeo so many years before. When such a passion connected to the human spirit explodes like this, it is stronger than a life itself. It is stronger than a death. Testing of the new Ferrari began. At 6.55 p.m., the car came to be refueled. A few laps later, the whine of the V12 fell silent. Only Ferrari driver Lorenzo Bandini saw Deserti as he flew off the track. The car was found on its side, buried 50 meters in the woods, torn to pieces and smoking. Deserti was slumped over the cockpit. He died shortly after 7 p.m. He was only 23 years old. A promising Ferrari racing career was cut short by a simple accident during an event that was supposed to launch the rest of his career. The accident was tragic news for Ferrari, but another tragic component was all the testing information was lost when the car was crashed. All of the work that had been done on their cars was destroyed and Ferrari was left without a proven car, only four weeks before the biggest race in the world. By
1: June, press outlets worldwide had picked up on the story of the second round of Ford versus Ferrari. Le Mans was still certainly a big deal for manufacturers. The New York Times stated that Enzo Ferrari believes that a win at Le Mans sells more cars than all of their victories combined. But more impressive was the buzz around Ford's attempted conquest of Ferrari. The papers were calling Ford's invasion of European motorsports the biggest American invasion since Normandy.
2: Dude, that's such a dick move. (laughs) What if Toyota was like, It's the biggest, Toyota, it's the biggest Japanese bomb since pearl harbor <laughs> toyota thon toyota thon <laughs> 2019
1: oh uh, yeah that's pretty insensitive on their part like that invasion was at this point only 22 years yeah since that it's like yeah man like thousands of people gave their lives to liberate france from nazi occupation
2: this is pretty much the same thing <laughs> yeah this is pretty much uh the second that was big this is almost as big we got six race cars. Six Fords
1: ended the race, prepared to beat the 10 Ferraris. On the night of Wednesday, June 16, 1965, a violent storm blew through eastern France, downing power lines and trees. For the first time ever, the opening day of practice at the circuit was canceled. The next day, the track had been cleared of downed branches.
2: I used to get so excited when practice was canceled.
1: Oh, dude. It's the best. I remember one time we had this huge storm, and our practice fields got completely soaked in mud. And we were out there for maybe 20 minutes. Everyone just got covered in mud. It was mm-hmm. pretty gross. Yeah. And then we we're like, oh, yeah, practice is going to be canceled. And then coach was like, all right, guys, go back up to the locker room. I think we're done down here. And we're just like, hell, yeah. He's like, put your running shoes on. We're going to practice in the gym. And we're just like, oh.
2: Just doing snakes.
1: I don't know. We're just running plays in the gym. Um, so dumb.
2: I went to like a Friday night light all boys Catholic school kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And football was a big deal. We've had practice on 9-11. And like I remember we were like, well, certainly we won't have football practice. And everyone was like, yeah, we're having football practice. We we're like, what? And I remember the coach, this dude, Coach Beatty, he's still the coach there. Uh, he was like, they don't want us to have practice today. They don't want us to beat Ballard on Friday night. I oh was <laughs> just like, can I please go home and talk to my family about this? Good. The next day, the track had been cleared of downed branches, though the ground was still wet. Mm, interesting. Hmm. Surtees knew it wouldn't be easy to beat Ford this year. Ford had a world-class lineup of drivers, many of whom he had raced against in F1. He knew from experience that they were fierce competitors. Surtees showed up ready to race and set a new mark on his first day of testing. He recorded a lap time of three minutes. seconds it was only three years earlier that drivers have been challenged to beat a four minute lap time unlike the pits over at ferrari the ford pit was filled with confusion there were too many people the race cars were all painted different colors and nobody knew who was in charge the men sent from dearborn were refusing to listen to shelby's teams the shelby guys don't have degrees they aren't real engineers grunted dearborn workers There was one thing worse than a disorganized paddock, and that was an unprepared car. The new Mark II was still terrifyingly unstable at high speeds. Luckily, Roy Lunn was there to save the day. He grabbed some metal cutters and some sheet aluminum and started creating dorsal fins for the car, placing them where necessary. With the -the on-the-fly engineering solution completed by Lunn, the car was ready to race. The GT40 managed to post the best time on the board, proving that Ford had made a faster car than Ferrari. Yay. Yay. (laughs) Before the race, Shelby met
1: one of his old friends from racing days, Mastin Gregory. These guys have just insane names. Mastin Gregory. My name is Mastin Gregory. Also, my I I listened back. Actually, he's probably
2: like Mastin Gregory. Mastin Gregory. Mastin Gregory. Put her there. They had won every
1: race between the two coasts in America together. Gregory was piloting a one-year-out-of-date Ferrari 275 LM for Luigi Chinetti's North American racing team. I think we mentioned him in, in earlier, episode one. Episode one. Everyone there knew there's no possibility of them winning with a obviously outdated car. Gregory was one of the first Americans to move to Italy to try to make it big in European racing. He was famous for two things, his trademark Coke bottle glasses and his aggressive racing style paired with his even more bizarre crashing style. Gregory crashed cars in the most glorious way possible. Whenever he would lose control, he would uh, simply stand up and <laughs> jump out of the car before it hit whatever <laughs> was in his path. He'd done it twice and survived. That's insane. That's dude. hilarious. That's like when you're in a Grant Tri- or not Grant Tri- the thought of like mm-hmm. five and you just bail out. Yeah.
2: Unlike Shelby, Gregory had inherited his fortune at the age of 19 from his deceased father. He blew it all on racing yeah. and was now trying to eke out a living from his past glories as a driver, slowly becoming more and more irrelevant. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. <laughs> hmm Hey, remember I used to be on YouTube? <laughs> Shelby saw what would have happened to him if he had not been forced to quit due to his health concerns, a man riding the wave of his former glory as far as it would take him. While they both enjoyed catching up, they were quickly summoned back to their pits, the race was about to begin. At 4 p.m., the flag dropped. The crowd watched in awe as the cars took off. The crowd was amazing this year. Over 300,000 people in attendance. But this time, something strange had happened. A large portion of the audience were Americans who had made the trek to come and support Carroll Shelby in his quest to beat Ferrari.
1: Immediately, the two GT40 Mark IIs took the lead, followed by Surchese in the Ferrari in third. Chasing the cars at nearly 195 miles an That's hour. That's cooking! That's so fast, but also this is 65 now. Mm-hmm. These things are still basically tin cans with enormous V8s in them.
2: Yeah, a GT40 is still only 40 centimeters tall? Yeah. 40 inches. I think it's centimeters. Centimeters, yeah. Yeah.
1: 40 inches. 40 inches. Inches. Okay, but still. Yeah. That's a tiny car! Yeah, they're tiny. It's It's like a baby car. (laughs) With each lap, the two Mark IIs furthered their lead. By 38 minutes in, they were holding a 38-second lead over Surgees. However, the biggest downside of the 7-liter engines was their fuel consumption. In a race, the engines were only getting 6 to 7 miles per gallon, which meant that over a gallon of fuel was being used each lap. But the increased number of fuel stops didn't matter as long as they kept a steady lead over the competition.
2: By the third hour, the two Mark IIs held a steady lead until Carol spotted the first sign of trouble. White smoke was spotted billowing from behind the cockpit of one of last year's 289 cubic inch GT40s. And thus began the plague, starting... With the 289 GT40s, the cars began to critically overheat. Engineers had decided to rebuild the engines a few days before the race, and they improperly installed the head gaskets. Don't! Resulting in all recently rebuilt engines to overheat and have to drop out of the race. Luckily, the overheating issues had not yet spread to the Mark IIs, so there was still a chance that Ford could beat Ferrari. That was until... The transmissions began failing within both of the cars. Oh, That's what happened last year. There was the fire and then the transmissions. At 8 p.m., Bruce McLaren pulled into the pit to switch drivers. As soon as Ken Miles pulled out with the car, it lost its gears and shredded its transmission. <laughs> By 11 p.m., the other Mark II suffered a similar fate with the clutch failing. Fortunately, though, they had set a record speed of 218 miles an hour on the Molson straight before bringing it into the pits.
1: I don't they got that going for them. So yeah.
2: at least we set a freaking
1: record newspapers had gone from comparing the race to the american invasion of normandy uh to comparing it to president johnson's troops in vietnam freaking press (laughs) so not cool
2: ferrari had also (laughs) suffered failure during the race the front suspension of certice's car collapsed forcing him out as well it was a result of the untested suspension due to the fatal accident only weeks prior by the end There were only two Ferraris left in the race. First place was a Ferrari official team. Second place was none other than the Kansas City Flash, racing for Luigi Cianetti. While Enzo offered Luigi incentives to throw the race, Luigi had denied him. He'd been the first to import Ferraris to the U.S., and Enzo had always treated him like shit. That's a quote. Mm -hmm. He considered this to be his chance to exact revenge on Enzo by beating him with a car that had been laughed at only hours earlier. Maston Gregory took the lead as the tires burst on the Ferrari in front of him. He was miles in the lead, and all he had to do was finish, and he did. That's crazy. An American team had won Le Mans for the first time in history, but unlike how Ford anticipated it, they won using a Ferrari. Better luck next time. Which is where we'll be in our conclusion next week on Past Gas. Woo. Um, Nolan, do we have anything to promote?
1: Check out Low on Facebook Watch. It's a really sick show. I assume we had a lot of fun making it.
2: Check out our other shows on the YouTubes. Nolan's got one called Wheelhouse. I got one called Bumper to Bumper. I got one called Up to Speed. Uh, check out our Instagram at Donut Media. Follow Nolan at Nolan J. Sykes. Follow you. me at James Pumphrey you want some cool, cool Donut merch, let all your friends know that you like cars and or pastries. Go to DonutMedia.com. Sign up for our newsletter to get 10% off your first order and be the first to know about all drops. Oh, you want to work for Donut? Go to DonutMedia.com as well. There's now a page where you can submit to be a host of Donut. Really? Yeah. It's going to be lit. We're building an empire. Um, All right. Bye.